Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Real quick thing, uh, the book Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity is for pre-sale now. You can go to wherever you get books and you can, you can buy it and it will show up on October 1st. We are having really great pre-sale. <laughs> I just heard from the publisher and they said, things are going really well. We're very happy. Here's why this is important. The happier they are and the better we do in pre-sale, the more money, resources, effort they're going to put into getting this book out there. That's a big deal for me. That's a big deal for Strong Towns. The higher we're going to rank and all the things that basically, if we open big, it's a huge accelerator. So if you're thinking about getting this book, if you're like, you know, I'd really like to do this, go do it right now. Like go get Strong Towns, a bottom-up revolution for rebuilding American prosperity. You're going to love the book. I promise. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Earlier this year, I had a chance to visit a development that I had heard about for a long time. A friend of mine from quite a while back got a chance to visit Serenby, which is a development outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And I had an invitation from the developer, essentially, let me know when you're in town and I'd love to show you around. Uh, it just so happened that I was in the Atlanta region earlier this year, and I took him up on that, and I'm extremely grateful that I did. It was eye-opening. It was a lot of fun. It's a beautiful place. Steve Nigren has agreed to come on the podcast today and talk a little bit about Serenby. Steve, welcome to the Strong Downs Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. I'm so happy to chat with you. And I want to start with just your background as a master developer. You you grew up in a family of developers, and you were developing properties since you were little, and this is in your blood, right? That's what... <laughs> this is probably the most fascinating thing about, about you and about this development, is that you're not a developer, or at least you didn't start that way. Can you give us a little bit of your background, where you came from, well, and... Yeah. Uh, I'm a, yeah, I, I grew up uh, as a, in a generational farm uh, in Colorado. My family's been in Boulder County, uh, Colorado, since the 1860s. Uh, I could hardly wait to get away from the farm. Went to the University of Colorado, started in architecture, was seduced into the hospitality industry, and then formed my own uh, restaurant company, opened 36 restaurants over 22 years, sold those, and retired. Um, and retired to the countryside outside of Atlanta to raise our children. Then in 2000, became concerned about urban sprawl and realized that I couldn't buy enough land to protect us at 900 uh, acres. I said I couldn't keep showing up at these closings, and 1,000 acres really didn't protect you in the path of urban sprawl. And so we started looking at, at, at models and what we could do, so I call myself a, a developer by default uh, because we realized to, in order to, to save the land on a large scale, 
we needed to find a balance between development and preservation, which a hundred years ago was a natural thing that happened. Uh, and today, uh, those are two camps on two different sides of the fence. Right, right. I want to emphasize this for a second. I don't want to say you're a chef. You're a chef and an, a restaurant entrepreneur, right? That's right. I mean, I, I did my days in the, in the kitchen, and uh, but then... We had a, a restaurant company, and, and my first restaurant was in part of Atlanta that, that had been developed around 1900 and, and then had you know, became very shabby in the 60s. Uh, but in 72, when I was looking for a site that I could afford, uh, this was on Peachtree Street. Everyone knew where Peachtree was. Everybody drove up and down between the fancy uh, residential areas to the downtown um, at that time. And, that's where I uh, opened my first restaurant. And we uh, were successful and, and developed a reputation about <laughs> going to places no one else would. But we saw places that were pretty obvious, I thought. So we ended up being in, in a lot of those neighborhoods where where people had, had left in the 60s, but they had this great character. And so we were the first restaurant in places around Atlanta, like uh, Roswell and Decatur, when the Pennsylvania Development Authority redid Pennsylvania Avenue between the White House and the Capitol in the 80s, we were one of the five restaurants they pulled in to go in there. We really developed that reputation of hospitality being a destination. That's pretty common today. But back in the, in the 70s, uh, that wasn't necessarily the thing. Our second restaurant was in Phipps Plaza that had uh, arrived in Atlanta with Tiffany's and Saks and Lord and & Taylor. And uh, Atlanta wasn't quite ready for it, I guess. Uh, that was the late 60s. And the mall was in bad shape. And they had a restaurant on the second floor. And so uh, it had left. You know, people didn't want to go into a second floor of a mall that in those days was closed five days of the week uh, at night. They offered us a deal we couldn't turn down, and within six months, uh, everything on the second floor was leased in retail spaces because we were drawing incredible lines. So, so we were the beginning of that, using hospitality as a draw either for re- restoring neighborhoods or uh, retail. And that's how I built my company. The people that I know in the hospitality business are the hardest working, most hustle kind of people that I know. Is that an accurate description? The successful ones, that's absolutely true of. (laughs) Yeah. And you were incredibly successful at this. You say you retired. You're still a young guy. So retired was in (laughs) what I'm hearing you say is I was done working 18 hour days, seven days a week, working holidays and, and everything else. And I decided to downshift. Is that a fair version of retirement in your? Well, yes and no. Number one, I had built an incredible company. We, you know, at the end of the days, we had like 6,000 W-2. So I certainly wasn't working the long days or working the lines. I had, a, I had an organization with incredible people. I realized that there was more to life and uh, a number of things that led me to just step off the treadmill. I was at a, at a relatively young age able to sell the company. And my kids at that point were three, five, and seven. And the idea of just living in the country and traveling and not not worrying. So, you know, I literally stepped off the treadmill and retired. Uh, if you see pictures of me in those days, my hair was down to my shoulders. <laughs> my days were spent putting in our garden, 
cutting new trails in property that I was buying, going out to the woods. And uh, uh, it, it was a pretty great uh, <laughs> seven years, I, seven years in the wilderness. Well, you said that you were grew concerned about sprawl. To me, if you were concerned about sprawl, you pick like the most sprawling, <laughs> you know, one of the most sprawling regions in the country. It's it's a little like saying, you know, I'm concerned about snow, so I move here to Minnesota. You know, it kind of goes with the territory. What what was that process of kind of waking up to what was going on around you and having it affect you the way it did? Well, you know, I, I arrived in Atlanta in... In 1969, um, and the process of opening a hotel, I was working for Stouffer's Food Corporation, and, and I was opening hotels for them. So I, I fell in love with what was about to happen to Atlanta. And, of course, the, the Atlanta of the 70s, we didn't think of as, as a sprawl. This was a, uh, the city that was on fire. And that's why I decided to step off the corporate treadmill and begin my company here. So Atlanta was part of me. I'm a part of Atlanta. So it wasn't a matter of choosing a place to retire. This this was a natural thing. And we stepped into it. We had uh, bought this this getaway farm as a weekend place. Uh, it was just a, a whim on an afternoon drive and uh, to show our kids farm animals. And I couldn't believe there was open land this close to Atlanta. I called and clarified that uh, we weren't interested in buying anything, but we were doing this drive. And would they mind if I pulled in if they had farm animals to show our kids? And, of course, anybody with something for sale says, come on. And we pulled in. They had the Shetland pony saddled, and we bought the farm. Uh, I had no idea why we were doing that. I rented the old farmhouse out. My wife fixed a shack in the back in case we ever wanted to spend the night. And for the next three years, it's where the family wanted to come every weekend. And we had a great house with pool and media room, all the trappings, right in, in Ansley Park, which is an inner city, uh, fabulous neighborhood in Atlanta. And yet everyone wanted to come spend their time out here in uh, the shack in the country. And that was my value shift. So it wasn't a matter of choosing where to retire to. This It was at this time in the country had really awakened something into me that I really didn't totally understand. But I knew I was tired of uh, of running the company. I was tired of showing up at all the balls, of supporting politicians, and a lot of them weren't <laughs> winning their elections. It, it, it just felt like a treadmill, and so I stepped off of it. Uh, but it was in Atlanta, and uh, you know, Atlanta was still up the road 30 minutes, 45, so for you know, foreign films and ethnic food and sports and retail and medical. Uh, we had that wonderful city of Atlanta just right there on the edge. And yet we had this rural lifestyle. So that's what I became concerned about. It wasn't, uh, initially it wasn't sprawl. It was, I just wanted to save my own backyard. It was that march of traditional development, strip malls, cul-de-sacs that I was reacting to. Uh, and then in the course of of reacting and then trying to figure out what to do, all of a sudden it was like, hey, you know, this, why aren't we doing a different job of this? You know, there are places in Europe that I responded to, places I remember, places I visit of how we developed towns 100 years ago. Why aren't we doing this anymore? Somewhere through that process, I, I slipped through that threshold of passion that 
I've got to do this. I had a, a lot of wonderful things that happened along the way. You know, number one, I was very involved. So as we did this, I knew who to call. Uh, a dear friend was Ray Anderson, who was a great environmentalist, uh, interface carpet and first U.S. industrialist company on a carbon neutral footprint. When I was telling him about my frustration, invited the Rocky Mountain Institute to come down and help me. And so they invited 23 of the thought leaders in September 2000 to come to Serenby for a two-day charrette. And uh, that even uh, made me realize more that there were a lot of serious issues because these were experts in, in water, energy, land, agriculture, what have you. But no one was talking about the built environment and how to do a better job of it specifically. These are all components of it. Then we visited the prairie crossing outside Chicago. And if you know that story there, they really had this great idea and they had hoped they would influence the entire area. They pushed all the development to 30% safe for farms and open spaces. And to their amazement, everyone around them loved the idea, but they put the same kind of development just right next to their edge uh, to take advantage of that um, space. So that's why I came back and said, we're not thinking large enough. And I spent the next two years bringing 500 landowners together. And these were diverse, pro-preservation, pro-development to a common vision of what we could do. And as our model, we used the uh, countryside of England because after World War II, they put some good uh, land laws in, and when you uh, visit England, uh, they have a lot of people in the hamlets, villages, and towns, but it still feels country. Uh, they have hard edges, uh, buildings can't follow the road out of town, and it, simple things that make a huge difference. And so uh, we we shared these ideas and concepts that uh, if, if we came together for a vision, uh, we could save more land than we could ever do through a preservation program. And we could return uh, higher uh, values to the pro-development people. The base infrastructure is uh, much less uh, to put cluster development versus sprawl development. So we've shown we can put 20% more housing per square mile uh, with our plan than Metro Atlanta has done over the last three decades. And in doing so, we will save 70% of the land versus the 15, 20% that's become the model in most of our urban areas. There's an amazing environmental component to this. And I was deeply impressed with just how you made such good use of the land and the topography. But I think even more than that, because I've, I've been in developments that were done with this rural preservation mindset and this uh, kind of clustering notion, and they still do junky buildings. They, they still don't build great places. The thing that blew me away about Serenby was the attention to detail in the the space, the public space. And you just described Hamlets and the English countryside. I visited the English countryside and there's a parallel there. Can you walk us through the first buildings? I say this with deep admiration, not to belittle in any way, but you take a chef and an entrepreneur in the hospitality industry and now you turn them into a developer. And those are two very different skill sets in many ways. I think you found a way to integrate them. I'd like you to walk us through those early buildings and what you, know, what you were trying to accomplish and what some of the things you ran into. 
I, I was a naive uh, as a developer that I did not know what I couldn't do. And then I had enough uh, willpower to change those things when it didn't make common sense to me. And so I was coming at this with new eyes. I was coming in it with a, a background of, of understanding the importance of land from my days in, in, in rural Colorado. Nature is something you have to respect. So I understood that. And in the hospitality, it's, it's how do you attract people? What's, we're the ultimate hosts. So wouldn't it be great if more of our developers had a respect for the land and were saw themselves as hosts. I brought that unique perspective, and and it's reflected in what our town looks like. The other big thing I set out from the beginning is that I wanted to build a town and not be a development. And I really studied the difference between those two because as I looked at, at, at towns, the places I loved to go to, the places I remembered, the places I took pictures of, they had a character to them. Uh, they were built over time, and there was varied architecture and, and good architecture. And, and, and there was a focus on, on view sheds. There's uh, a, a flow to the buildings, a charm. And if you, if you look at any, any of the towns that are pre-1930, you'll generally see these characteristics. The developments that we've become used to in the last several decades, uh, there seems to be a fairly narrow lens in the architectural styles that are allowed, and you can look at most of them and date them, and you think of them as a development versus a town. Uh, and so we really have worked hard. To, it's, a, it's a delicate balance between those two. And that's what we've tried to bring forward uh, is w- when you look at Serenby. We look at the streets as, as a complete landscape and streetscape. Phil Tab, uh, my land planner, and I walk the state roads as we're, as we're developing. And we determine where every house should sit from the curb and the exact height. So we develop that massing for that house, and that's specific for every lot, not an average of a street or a section, but every lot. That's what you're responding to when you visit Serenby, and it it flows. There's uh, the houses aren't jumping up in the yard saying, look at me, look at me, and there's a calmness. Uh, Probably the, the greatest word we use in our design review board is restraint. Uh, we've come through a period where everybody's trying to do everything on one house, and we don't uh, encourage that. But we like punctuations along the street, thing, things to happen contemporary next to some traditional. The basic frame of what we're doing here, we looked at the southern vernacular from um, 80, 100 years ago. So that gives us a framework, uh, but then when we have contemporary punctuations and other types of architecture that, that we encourage to happen as it dots the, the community. I think a lot of people, when they get into development and, and they start to uh, develop properties, will will pick out a style or a, a vernacular, and that is you know the one they obsess about, and they, they start to delve into that one and they start to iterate off of it and, and they'll build whole developments that have a certain like feel to it. 
Saren B, I agree with you, was very peaceful and comforting, but it wasn't because of the uniformity of style. You actually, and I think it took a while for me to even pick this up, it was so subtle. You've actually mixed, in a textbook way, it would be considered bizarre. On site, it's absolutely breathtaking. You mix styles in a very different way than I've ever seen before. Was that something that you set out to do, or was that something that happened more naturally as you were putting things together? We set out to do that. I, I did not... Number one, I really studied towns and had the experience also. Ansley Park, where our home was uh, in Atlanta, right on the edge of downtown, and it was in Midtown. It was built in the early 1900s. Uh, Olmsted did uh, the land plan, so it's these these curved streets that are wonderful and parks. Uh, there was varied architecture from from the 1900s. It was that period, and then over the course of the hundred years, there was remodeling. There were even houses torn down and contemporary houses put up. And there was a period of time a lot of people were really kind of controlling that uh, in, in what was approved and. Uh, very contemporary houses. There were there were a few, not many, but uh, they ended up going basically on the same foundations, set the same distance from the street, were basically the same size as the house that had been torn down, or in case maybe one burned down, and it worked. As that area became more popular, people were trying to do grander houses, and somehow that control slipped away and. Uh, I've seen houses that become bigger than their neighbors out to the street, and suddenly it doesn't work. And that's when I realized you can have extreme different architecture next door to each other if you get the placement and the massing correct. But if you don't do that, it's it's jarring. It's It's not pleasing. So that I really noticed. And I also wanted there to be points of interest. I didn't want it monotonous. You know, I've seen some of these developments and they just add more streets and more streets and it's it's just the same streets. You, you, you don't know where you're at. And so I wanted to address that in, in, in some specific ways, but natural ways. It also holds value of the homes. You know, if I were just doing... 1,200 of the same homes on different streets. What, what's the difference? Uh, we're, we're doing everything different. So people become attached to our various districts. Uh, so Selborne, the first we did, well, that's the vernacular architecture. Our commercial core, which were, were set up in a series of uh, omegas or uh, horseshoes, and in the, the top and the curve is where we have our retail focus. That's where our retail buildings are, our um, public buildings, and they each have a specific architectural style. Uh, so in Selborne, we focus on arts. We have places for uh, art galleries, art schools, and the architecture is uh, from the 1930s when the architectural movement was coming through. Uh, so restaurants, uh, Japanese restaurant, what have you, they're in these so, sort of that that characteristics. But the uh, main art center is very contemporary. We haven't built it yet. It was designed by Max Scoggins and Merrill Elon, and it's all uh, polished white steel and glass and, and, and sits against the forest and very contemporary. So there's that constant edge. 
Uh, in Grange is focused on agriculture. That's where our farm is and edible landscaping and all the, the crosswalks and, and common areas. That's architecture from around 1890. So there's a, a, a retails one story there, except for uh, the base of the apartment building, which is five stories. Uh, and so that inspiration is from the old cotton storage barns uh, that would have happened back in the 1800s. In the commercial area, we really set a tone, and then different things happen. Uh, off of the edge of that, we have what I'm calling pocket communities. And, and uh, so you, you, you go behind the retail, and there is this great bridge, and it's a pedestrian bridge, uh, that takes you over to a, a cobblestone street, and those uh, houses are inspired from the Cotswolds uh, outside London. But that's a pocket neighborhood, but you you walk to it. You don't really see it from the others other than through the trees. And so that gives that interesting little pocket over there. And and uh, on on the main street, the the uh, you know we we have townhouses, uh, white uh, brick uh, from from Bruges. And I realize you know America when it was developed, it was mostly Europeans, and they were bringing their taste from various European countries. So why have we gotten away from that? Why can't we do that if we mix it in the proper way? It's going to look very natural, uh, like the places were were built a couple hundred years ago here. That's what we're we're doing, and and it's working. It's interesting because it does feel like it's been there a long time. <laughs> um, <laughs> that that's how we get that, that that patina, if you will. Right. One of the things that I was just the most blown away with was the attention to detail on the views. And the view sheds. And there's this one, it's got to be like ultimately an iconic kind of place. Remember when we were standing in that little square towards the end of our time together, I was kind of gushing about the uh, Scandinavian-esque buildings that were forming that square. And then you had the uh, the spa that you'd see out on one side and then the little where pyramid thing was going to be on the other side. Do you know what I'm speaking of now? Oh, I know exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think the thing that stuck with me that I thought about long, long, long after that is how you must have sat or someone must have sat and figured out, because you're talking about thousands of feet of view, you know, from from one end of this to the other, across various landscapes and, and different types of terrain and different types of building styles, to be able to see from one focal point to the other focal point and have it like properly framed throughout the entire experience. We can't even get the street lights in my town to where we can see down the street. <laughs> Why are you so obsessed over views? Why is that so important? I mean, two things. And as you see it, Sarah, you're, you're describing a place that carries your eye through the built environment, that, that, that wonderful square, and you look through the arch but it pulls your eye into nature. And so everything we're doing here is, is a little bit of that mystery. I realize how important experiences are to have awe. And nature's here. We just have to sort of create the frame to help draw the eye into that awe or create a mystery about the awe. So what you're speaking about is those view says that absolutely draw you across the terrain far into the woods and, and 
it creates that wonder. What what is there? How do I get there? Because the path isn't always direct. The viewshed is, <laughs> but but you've got to kind of wander and find the path to get there. But the viewshed is very absolute. Then on the other hand, if you're on our streets, they curve. You cannot see from one end of a street to another. You see the buildings creating constant views, and you're, and you're having to curve. It's that mystery that pulls you on. So in both cases, whether it's the direct view shed or the, the mystery of the street, it's to open our, our curiosity and our wonder and our awe. We have gotten away from that as we build places uh, for people to live. This was natural to me in, in the places I loved and why were they? Why did I love them? And as I thought about it, uh, and, and I and I realized I have that trained eye. I have that gift that I can I can see it and I can I can understand those things as as I look at a landscape and then I can study the topography and oh well this is what we have happen and and I have a great team and in, in, in Phil Tab our land planner and several architects that that we together can really look at some of these things and and, and push and pull and wouldn't this be fun. And that makes a difference. And now we've done this and studies that are coming through. While we started out as an environmental community, and we've got a lot of story about that, what America and a lot of places in the world are talking about is what are we going to do about our health? Uh, we're, we're sicker than we've ever been. We're more depressed. Antidepressants are increasing fourfold each decade. Uh, that's a real focus, and there's a lot of studies coming back. Connection to nature and each other are key things that affect our brains, uh, and our brains are affecting our physical health and many of the main main diseases. They're starting to identify beauty, how beauty actually affects how we feel about things. So what you're describing, the awe, these all affect, and and I think while you were here, I'm sure you noticed that the people walking on the street, there's a sense of, of peace or happiness. They're waving, they're smiling. You you can observe it. All these things, connection to nature, view shed, the beauty of the buildings, that's all affecting to our health and well-being and our mental attitude. I want to talk about the community a little bit because you've created, and I. I don't know the exact word that you use to describe them, but but different. I don't even want to say themes, but they're they're different sections of of Serenby that that kind of are based around a different notion of life. Can you talk a little bit about the community that you've built there, and why I think giving people different ways to experience life is so important to the concept that you you've built. When I describe it to those people who have never been to Serenby or seen pictures of it, it's going to sound like I'm talking about a Disneyland kind of place or an Epcot. And <laughs> and, 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 and in programming, it you know I guess it is a little bit, but it's in a very authentic uh, way. We, when you're here, when you live here, you don't feel that at all. I will attest when you say that, and I don't want to interrupt, but you 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 say that when I first saw the the diagrams, I kind of thought that myself. I'm like, well, this seems a little cheesy. <laughs> um, and and then when you get out of there, it, it is so authentic and not forced. So yeah, describe it and I'll attest to that. When, you know, so we were, you know, having fun thinking about, okay, if I'm going to build the community that I'm going to love, 
what are the things we want? Now, we've already set this base about uh, about nature, about pulling front porches up and having, you know, the coffee shop and mailboxes around it. So all these components that connect people to people. But then what are the other things? And so art was one of the key things. Uh, because art is so important, whether you're in business as a restaurateur, I saw, you know, how much better our business was when we had, uh, we were down the road from a a theater or an art gallery opening and yet many art groups struggle to stay alive. And so we wanted to focus on the arts. Um, so we commissioned artists to create our, our streetlights, our, 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 our benches, our, our trash cans, our street signs, everything. We employ craftsmen, many people, you know, they're not honored anymore to actually produce a lot of this stuff. And we formed the Serenby Institute for Arts and Environment, and there's a 1% transfer fee for every house sold or resold that supports that. So we have really established an authentic and well-regarded arts program now in, in, in live performances and dance and artists in residence and visual arts. And it, it's, it's just incredible. People are coming all over for our art programs. A focus on our food. You know, what, what are we eating? That was important. And so that's why the farms and, and the farms pulled right up to the houses. I mean, Serenby really is the, is the beginning of the agri-hood movement where, where we really integrated, not just had a farm, but we really brought it next to other houses. And so we have a lot of houses that overlook the farm. Uh, but we brought edible food into the streets. And so that's why all of our common areas. So, you know, we don't have grass uh, anywhere. When blueberries are out, I mean, blueberries at every crosswalk along the street, uh, the community just comes alive. Everyone comes in. It, it's just amazing to see how that simple thing has created. Uh, and, and the kids all know that, boy, when the service berries are coming out, that means the blueberries are next. And then and then the figs are coming after that. And then comes the apples and the plums. And, and, and then the final thing are the nuts. You know, And, and suddenly, just naturally, our kids are all understanding the, the seasonalities of food. It, it just creates a, a, an entire culture. And, and, and down there is where we put things that you would you'd think of as agriculture. That's where the general store is and the blacksmith shop, the bookstores down there. And, you know, we have a meeting hall that's all set up to you, cooking classes. And, uh, so it, it, it's natural kind of things that go with that. Our third community, which we're building now, is, is focused on health and wellness. And as I started thinking, okay, what, what, what's the architecture? What relates more directly to that? We kept looking at Scandinavia. In America, we tend to think the way to protect our, our, our children and our youth is to basically lock them up, if you look at how we treat them, where Scandinavia has a lot of uh, intergenerational, multi-generational programming, uh, the way they regard everyone, how they deal with health, and, and uh, you know, visiting senior centers there, and just a lot of things. So, so I decided that why not have the architectural base for that area come from Scandinavia. So I spent time in Stockholm, down through the countryside to Malmo and over into Copenhagen and brought those images, both contemporary and uh, historical images. And the architects that we were working with to do that uh, entire streets and walk corridors, that's been their influence. Uh, And so you'll see different colors, different shapes. The Scandinavians, I found, have a they're really simple and they don't have a lot of ornamentation on the buildings. 
but they know how to f- have fun with shape and color. And so that's what we're really bringing forward over there, and it, uh, people are reacting to it beautifully. Our fourth community that we're, we're now starting to work on the plans that will be focused around play, not a playground, but it's a four-acre park, and it's being left all natural with the rocks and some of the old-growth trees that are there, and there'll be little pocket, very manicured parks that, that where you sat, but the highest point, we're putting a three-story treehouse pavilion lookout, uh, and that will have a zip line down to the wine bar. Uh, and wine bar is going to be <laughs> of course. in, in uh, containers. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> why not? So it's, it's to put that light feel, you know, we, we have to think more about play, and that's sort of a connection to the health benefit thing. And then our, 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 our fifth community is focused around education. Now, we have play, we have food, we have other communities, but it's what the real commercial core uh, is and how it's built. Uh, and that's going to be around education, and uh, that's where we're going to put our uh, semester away campus, where we, we, we have universities come and bring a complete semester of students with uh, their professor, and we're working uh, to have a base uh, program with one of the Georgia University, University of Georgia, to where it can be one-off students, so corporations could send uh, uh, scholarships uh, in, from from anywhere around the world. Uh, so we're going to build a complete campus. It's a semester away, bricks and mortar that universities can rent, students can come to. We're going to do an executive training center. We're going to do a um, uh, international uh, school with a boarding component. So a, a lot of ha- happening there. So it's just things that are important to our daily lives, and we're putting a focus on them uh, in building places that cater to that, but the same kind of business could actually be everywhere. Let me give you two critiques, and I want to give you these as a way to to let you respond to them. Because I know that people listening today are going to, the two things they're going to say is, first, this sounds like it must be really exclusive. Like, there's no way I could live here. And then the second one is that this is not replicable at all. Like, what you're doing sounds amazing, but I could never do this, or no, no one else could ever do this. This, this takes this kind of mad genius to be able to put this together. You are a little bit of a mad genius, but push back on those two critiques, if you would. Well, absolutely. I mean, what we're doing here now, first of all, we are located in the southwest section of metro Atlanta. This was an area that had no service, terrible schools, and it's why it was still sitting like this. So we were in the middle of affordable housing and depressed property values in a greater area. We're talking about 65,000 acres. So my challenge was to come in and create something that had a different image and could balance the tax base for the area so that we could stand alone. And so we changed the zoning in 2002. We broke ground in 2004. And we so inspired the area that by 2007, we petitioned the state legislature to become our own town. Because of the executive housing we were bringing in, we were able to show that we would have a balanced tax base. And we created our cityhood through that. So my focus was to create uh, executive-style housing. Uh, and that's what we've done. Now, 
I've got a lot of ideas on how we'll do the affordable housing. But but right now, you know, my employees, people that need affordable housing, uh, the little town of Palmetto is four miles away, and, and it's part of our greater Chattahoochee Hill Country area. Um, so that's one of the big things. But all these principles can apply, you know. <laughs> in fact, if you put edible landscaping in, it's going to be cheaper than the ornamentals we're putting in. To maintain a yard with grass, we're having to put chemicals on it to make it look good. You're having to cut it every week and blow it. It's more expensive to do the traditional things we're doing, even in affordable neighborhoods, than I'm suggesting we do and that we're showing how people how to do it. So that's a good example. If you look at stormwater, We've been regulated for decades to put them in these expensive pipes. Those rules have just changed. That is actually less expensive to do. We were really cutting edge here at Serenby because we had the you know the big experts doing that, but it's happening all over. Uh, the uh, historic Fourth Ward Park in Atlanta above the, the Jamestown uh, Pond City Market is a good example. The city of Atlanta had to redo the, the, the stormwater because it was flooding. It was under, underground. They, they were putting, going to put in the traditional old, put it underground, big pipes. And someone stood up and said, no, let, let, let's do it differently. And, oh, it's too expensive. We can't do that. Well, they priced it out, and it turns out the environmental daylighting it was actually, I think it's $2 million or more or less. That is one of the greatest assets there now. And so parking lot and warehouse buildings have now transitioned to all condos and apartments overlooking this green space and water retention from stormwater that's all visible and it's a park. These things are less expensive than the traditional ways we're doing it, and it adds to the quality of life in each case. And there's case after case in our case I can show you. Just because I have expensive houses here doesn't mean that these principles that we're applying here can apply to anywhere that we are. Um, stormwater, stormwater in our, in, in our urban areas that, that have been around, a lot of it's crumbling, a lot of it's having to be repaired. And, and you're seeing that change. Los Angeles is changing the big concrete ditch into a bioretention park. Uh, campuses are, are, are daylighting their stormwaters. Imagine if every city thought about combining their parks and their stormwater departments together. You know, just imagine for a minute how many people know how the raindrop that falls on the roof of their house finds its way to the river. And hardly anyone can imagine that. And so imagine, rather than it finding its way down through the, uh, the, the pipes and into the pipes in the ground, if those all became green corridors and our cities had green veins going to the tributaries into the streams. And, and, and if our cities started changing the regulations with a simple line that anyone doing uh, housing, everyone doing housing knows what they have to do for the automobile. You know, how many spaces, what the turn lanes are, what the distances are. Uh, a developer can recite that. But how much is for the pedestrian or for our kids? And so if we put a simple clause in there that you have to demonstrate your path and the future connectivity. I mean, we can't do it now, but you have to think out to natural nature. 
not a park, but natural nature. Everybody's going to scratch their head, and you'll have to have a little tutorial. Our only natural natures in a lot of our urban areas are the tributaries, and the tributaries are there somewhere. It's how the rain stormwater gets to the river. And a lot of them are underground. And if we started daylighting those, it would just change our urban areas and the quality of life. And this is especially true in our uh, affordable housing uh, neighborhoods. We need to change the experiences kids growing up have in both urban agriculture and bringing nature and nature corridors uh, into these neighborhoods. I've got one last question for you. At Strong Towns, a lot of our critique of the American development pattern is that it's incapable of evolving and changing. We, we build things all at once and we build them to a finished state and we don't really think about you know what comes next. It's clear to me that you've taken a lot of time to think about the environmental impact of your development and want this to be something that, you know, a hundred years from now, 200 years from now will still be a, a great place in that regard. How do you, when you think about the buildings and the little hamlets and the things that you've built, what do you think a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, long past you and I, and, and everybody's living there now, what do you think the, the future of these will be? We're, building them to sustain and to be 200 years. You know, I, uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking about when I shared with the architect our attached houses, which we don't see of a lot in, in America. These are one-story, just attached cottages uh, that we were building. And uh, he was working with all my images from uh, Sweden. And uh, I happened to be traveling, and, and he was working on it, and and he, he sent me a text with a, a sketch he had. I said, no, that's not quite right. And I happened to be in Bath, England. And I turned around, and there, and there was this attached one-story house, thatched roofs or sagging. And I looked at the little cornerstone, and it was from, I think, 1690. And I took a picture of that and sent it to him. And basically... <laughs> That's what he added to design. So it's a little more English than Swedish. You know, it doesn't have the thatched roof. But but there was a house still standing, still functioning from 1890. I would hope that these buildings will be uh, uh, built in such a way that they can be maintained and that they still have relevance and then that people still love them. You know, and granted, there's, there's going to be something that gets torn down or changed uh, uh, and those kind of things happening. But I think the the core will be here. I, I'm building the streets, uh, not for automobiles, but for pedestrians. My fifth phase that I mentioned about, ooh, we're just putting a central garage. And there's, there's, it's walking corridors where a fire truck or emergency rooms can get to, but the, the cars won't be allowed. You know, when we thought that, thought about that 20 years ago, we were a lot further from a time when I don't think we're going to be driving our individual cars uh, in not too distant future. You know, while people get the idea that uh, – our building pattern uh, are not going to evolve. Uh, I think we're be going to be forced to it, uh, both with the way we deal with our transportation and the way we deal with our health issues. Uh, yeah, it's going to change, uh, and we need to be converting talents to do that. I remember when I was at uh, a conference with the Urban Land Institute maybe five years ago, and I forget who was doing the presentation. It was one of the big developers. And he got up there and he said, you know, all of you are, put, are are doing a lot for the automobile. You're putting all these big garages. Now, he says, 
you're the same people that 23 years ago were building golf courses everywhere, and now you're trying to figure out how to repurpose part of them. So he says, you're building these big structures. He said, we're going to have a time where everybody isn't going to be parking cars in our urban centers. And they had some images they showed. So, so think about how those are going to be reused. Your good developers, uh, you know, are, are going to be thinking about those things because our, our built environment is going to change in the next 20 years. Right. You are an authentic person. And I, I have to say, I, I really enjoyed my time there, but also my time just with you. This conversation has been just as delightful. I, I want to point out one thing. We're walking around Serenby, and all of a sudden we stumble upon your son-in-law and your daughter and your grandkids. They all live there. I mean, we brought up Disneyland a little bit earlier. This is something very real to you, isn't it? Absolutely. The, the greatest reward is uh, my three daughters. Um, one went to Cornell, the other two the University of Colorado. Uh, you know, and I expected them to go off and uh, be in distant places. Garney was in the hospitality. I thought she'd be opening hotels around the world. And, and, and to my absolute delight, they've all returned uh, with their northern husbands. And my grandchildren are all being raised right here on the streets of Serenby. And I can walk to their front doors or, or, or they to me. So I see uh, all of them on a regular basis. And, and it's rewarding to see other people are moving here and modeling that same thing. We have several multi-generations. It, it's a great way to live. Well, you have been more than generous with your time today and also uh, when I was out there. So I just want to thank you again. If anybody wants to check out Serenby, we will put in our show notes, uh, links to, uh, all the stuff we've got. And, uh, Daniel wrote up a, a really nice piece about the place and we will, I think, hopefully continue to be in touch and, and have much more in the future. Well, absolutely. De- delighted with all you're doing with strong towns to, to really bring a focus on, uh, we, we can do uh, a better job in many cases on, uh, on how we're building the future. And so thanks for all you and your team are doing. Hey, Thank you, Steve. You take care. Have a nice weekend. All right. Come see us again. Oh, I I absolutely will. No doubt. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Take care. I know. And everybody, thank you for listening and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, thank the city! is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.